Aisha Degree? No. <laughs> I I can't even go into this. I we have to go into this, but I am this has got me up. I have done insane amounts of research on this case, too. Like mainly because of the criticism of my previous research, like I mentioned, but I really really just like got sucked into a deep dive on this case because I've done the story before. I've covered it on TikTok. I've done a YouTube video on it, but I have never really gone through and like looked at a detailed, just kind of looked at a detailed um, timeline of how all of this breaks out. But also I've had to disrupt that timeline in my mind based on some of the theories that are coming to light because there are some of the obvious ones, but there are some that are less obvious and more like conspiracy, I would say, Um, which again, I should preface that everything I will say in terms of theories is just a theory. None of this is concrete. Not a lot of it is substantiated um, by evidence that follows through to the very end. But this is a wild case. (sighs) I don't know if it's because like, I know that area well too. I was going to ask my first question. I was like, how well do you know Shelby, North Carolina? Yeah, I mean, I knew friends that, like, grew up in Shelby. It's, like, outside of Charlotte. Um, So I knew a ton of people in college that had, like, been... They had grown up in Shelby or, like, knew... I just... Hearing that it was there, I can immediately start to see... You picture it. You see it, yeah. ...where she was. Yeah. Oh. (sighs) Yeah. Um, Also, the timing mm. of this, too, happening in the year 2000 is really interesting to me because I had to reframe a lot of how I think about how cases are approached. Because, I mean, that was 22 years ago at this point and how cases Mm -hmm. cases are approached today versus how they were approached then versus accessibility to, like, cell phones, the internet. Like, reading through this, especially when, you know, someone sees her, my immediate thought, I'm like, call 911. Nobody had cell phones. You, You would have to drive off an exit and find a place that was open at like four in the fucking morning and, and find a phone so you could call police. Like it's that, de- all of that is delayed. Yeah. It's, it's odd because as I was learning more about this and reading about it, it sounds like a case from like the forties or fifties. It does not sound like it was in the year 2000. That just gave me a great idea. We should cover the solder children on another episode. Do you know that story? No. Oh, we'll do on it. It's a Christmas story. It happened on Christmas Eve. So maybe as we get a bit closer to December, okay, I'll, we'll I'll take that, that one up. A... That okay, one I want okay. you to blind react to because you'll lose okay. your okay. <laughs> But that took place in the 40s or 50s, too. That's what made me think of it. Um, also had to do yeah. with the child disappearing. Actually, like four or five of them disappearing in one night. Oh, my gosh. Sinister. I can barely handle one. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> With that, I was going to say, I was like, should we just jump straight into it? Because also, hey, everybody, I always forget to do this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Creep Time. <laughs> <laughs> With Silas Dean and Stu. Oh. <clears throat> Guys, we're a little bit, let's just address the elephant in the room. We're a little down on our energy right now. Because I, know. I hope they can't tell that I'm, it's manufactured, like trying to muster this energy. But we, we did just learn, we should say that we, we've learned that Aaron Carter just passed away which we were talking about before we came on and we were both kind of devastated by it but did you grow up with aaron carter because he was probably the first cd and artist i was aware of when i was a kid I was yeah really aaron's young. party that was like that defined our childhood at least for me aaron's yeah. party the lizzie mcguire episode he was on i remember being obsessed with him i'm so sad they had games about him too we had um i had like the aaron and nick carter um 
version of Twister, which like I, I forgot how they were like infused into that, but I think it had something wow, to do with wow, that's amazing. Like, I know it had something to do with like a CD that came, but just reading that today, literally seconds before we came on the pod, I was so so sad and devastated by it. And I wanted to talk about this with you before, but we should just mention it. Like I, I have a big issue with celebrity culture and how we haven't gotten to a point where we can watch people hurting and watch people struggling and mm-hmm. stay complacent for so long or even, even worse. And I don't think this happens as much today, but like, I think a lot about Lindsay Lohan when she was struggling with constant issues with alcoholism. She has alcoholism in her family from her father. Everybody knew that. DUIs and everybody just kind of making her the butt of the joke for like two decades, basically. And nobody mm-hmm. really, you know, saying, you know, this is someone who's struggling or this is somebody who needs help or needs recovery or healing. And I, I just hate that that's a big part of being in the press, being in the media, is that nobody really seems to care until it's too late. And that's what this feels like with Aaron. Absolutely. Especially for these child stars where. Unfortunately, they it becomes um, like comedy and fodder when they start going through tough times because it's like, look how far really? they've fallen and like it's hilarious that they're – and it's just – it really sucks. Like uh, these poor Disney stars, I just hate how many of them end up falling prey to – drugs and alcohol and um the media does absolutely nothing to help with that yeah (laughs) i think it it, i think it honestly it opens up a wider conversation about the safety around like child actors and if we see such a insistent pattern with a lot of them falling victim to substance abuse or mental health issues later in their life it makes me question whether or not that's actually safe to have children working that hard in media or working that hard in television and movies but it's no doubt that like Aaron was exploited his entire life. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I promise. I know this is this is a downer. We're just really kind of devastated about it, and I thought it was important that we talk about it. So we will move on from it. But to his family, we extend love, and we're just so sad and sorry about this. It's really it's horrible. Yeah. Oh, we'll we'll be thinking about him and their family. Yeah. All right. I guess we should probably just start getting right into it because I have a lot to cover with Asia Degree. Are you ready? I'm ready. Whew. All right. Deep breath. All right. So the story of Asia Degree. Now, this takes place in the small subdivision that was just outside of Shelby, North Carolina. You said you're semi-familiar with the area, and this is in the year 2000. So nine-year-old Asia Degree, she was born on August 5th, 1990, and she lives in this apartment with her two parents, Harold and Akila, as well as her older brother, who's only older by like a year. So I don't know if you saw this in your research, but I really, again, wanted to do like a deep dive on Asia's backstory and just to get a better sense of her personality and then who she was, how she existed in school and her friend groups. And from everything that I read, she's described as a very normal child. You know, she was bright. She was attending, let's see, Falston Elementary School as a fourth grader. And she had a near perfect attendance record, which two things, which I'll get into later. I think that's one indicative of the kind of kid that she was. But I Mm -hmm. also think it's indicative of the strict household that she was growing up in. And that kind of plays into some of the theories here. Mm. So her friends at school and, you know, outside family friends who knew her, everybody from playdates, birthday parties, 
even sports that she was in. She was described as a happy but shy kid. And she was friendly but would often try to be funny, which even I think it's interesting. The FBI, when they noted in their official statement, um, kind of recapping her personality, they also mentioned that, that she would often try to be funny, try to make people around her laugh. She was also um, a child who was pretty cautious. Uh, She had a good number of fears, but particularly a fear of dogs and wild animals, which is fascinating. And, And a fear of the dark which is blowing my mind. Did you read anything about that in the context of this case? No. Yeah. No, but wow. Okay, that, that colors this so much more for me. Wow. Okay, one of the like the more pivotal details that I wanted to mention on Aisha's life is that she was a young athlete, and she was playing for her school's youth basketball division, which I looked it up. It's called the Peewee Team. Is that a common thing? I never played sports yes, growing up. Yes, I was on the Pee Wee team. You were on a Pee Wee? Okay. Wait, I was basketball? on a Pee Wee basketball team. Yep. You played basketball? When I was a Pee Wee. I was going to say. <laughs> One year. <laughs> I was like all like five foot three of you. <laughs> no, at that point I was like four foot five. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Very small. I mean, Aisha's pretty close. Um, I think I don't think she was a particularly tall kid for her age. I think everyone's kind of at the same level. It's just, it's mm-hmm. for the sake of playing the sport. But... She was a part of the Pee-wee team. Uh, let's see, where she was described as very competitive and excited because kind of like when you're young and you're like finding your spot in something, you and I can both kind of relate to this because we were theater kids. So being a shy kid, and this was her first year playing in the sport, once you find something and you get confirmation from either your peers or adults that you're even a little bit good at it, you get such a sense of importance around that thing because you feel like I found my place. Like I know what I'm good at, even when you're like Mm -hmm. eight, nine, 10. Right. Absolutely. Um, but she was kind of naturally gifted at it. So she did take it really seriously. And, you know, the coach and her subsequent team members who were interviewed, they all kind of confirmed that she was considered a bit of a star player on this team. She was a point guard, um, which meant that she, she liked it and she was good at it and she felt good playing it. But that also plays into just a couple of days before all of this goes down, something that happens in relation to her basketball team in the first game of the season. So, like I said, the reason that this is important and I'm mentioning it is because a lot of the case has focused on that first basketball game and what happened. So she lost that game uh, because she fouled out. So a lot of the the onus of the loss, I think, in her mind fell onto her. And she was described as really, really upset when she when they lost this game and she was sidelined. So she's crying. Her team members go to comfort her. Parents comfort her. But they also mentioned that she kind of got over it pretty quickly in the moment and that she, you know, tears aside, she sticks around and kind of like hangs out and watches her her brother's basketball game, I think, right after. So there's just a lot of conversation about the significance of that game and how she was feeling. Uh, But from the consensus of her family and the people who were around her, it didn't seem very serious, but a lot of people have used that moment as a jumping off point to try to explain some of the odd behavior of Asia on the 13th to the 14th. So before I actually get into what we're talking about and what happened the night of, I just want to hear your thoughts on Asia and, and your research as a whole, like what your, your perception is of her. Yeah, I mean, I think she was a really, if I had to guess, determined sweet, um, well-rounded kid, which makes this so 
upsetting and bizarre. Um, that's just what I kept running into when I was reading and researching. Why? Why would she leave yeah. is what I kept thinking. Why, why, why? Because she just seemed, um, even if they did lose the first game of the season and she was the star player, she seems like the type of kid that would be like, I'm going to bounce back and come back and like, we're going to, we're going to still beat. Oh yeah. The, if it this, was important we'll her, beat totally. this team again in the season. Yeah. Like, so it just didn't make much sense to me that the theories that most people come up with, and I guess it's because it's really the only one, only like morsel of an explanation exactly. is that she was yeah. upset. She was upset about this game, but I just find it so hard to believe she would, you know, do what she did because of this game. Did you have any, so when I was reading about her, tell me if you felt the same way, but I had this sense that she was like an intense rule follower. Like she was somebody who yeah. like never really broke from the chain of what was supposed to happen, what you were supposed to do. I can see how that could be really disruptive to like a young child's mind to feel maybe their first taste of like intense failure. Or yeah. maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's it's not as serious as we're thinking of it. And we're just doing the same thing where we're like clinging onto anything we can for this. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You would have to think in order for her to leave because of this game that she would have to be the way you're describing. So intense. I think so. so but it just doesn't make sense to me from like an emotional perspective at nine years old to be that intense about something. It just doesn't add up to me. I guess so. I, yeah. I mean, maybe there, there could be things that we don't know about the household, things that we don't really know about the yeah. dynamic and, you know, but from everybody who's kind of weighed in on this, most people have kind of discredited that moment as being the inciting incident that would lead mm-hmm. to the disappearance. But mm-hmm. with that, maybe I should just dive straight into the night of. Yeah. Oh, we, we <laughs> I'm like, I'm hesitant to get into it because it freaks me the fuck out when I read this. I'm same here. Same here. Like I have, my stomach is turning as I know you're about to launch into it because it just, the, the strange and the bizarre of it all and the unknown of it all makes me sick to my stomach. It does. No, physic. I feel physically ill when I read about this. It's just yeah. every step of the way and sort of the nonsensical, I have to stop talking about it and just read it, but like, I can't get over it. Like <laughs> it's driving me insane. And I know this Creepers, story. Gird your loins. Yeah. And creep, I hope creepers, you have if you don't know this story, strap in. Cause <sighs> this one, I would yeah. say I put this up at my top five. I, I liken this to the same level of eerie as like a Brandon Swanson for me. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what actually happened. So on February 13th, Aisha and her brother um, attended church. This was a Sunday morning, and then they went to a relative's house right after. And they're kind of spending the majority of the day there. I think actually the night before, they had had a sleepover at a cousin's. I'm not sure if the brother was involved in that, but I know Aisha definitely was. So they then head back home that night where Aisha, I think, actually fell asleep on the couch And I don't think, or I'm not sure if her parents were home at this time, because I also found it in the research that both her and her brother had house keys and they were kind of trusted at this age to come back home, let themselves in. They had family that lived literally across the street, the grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it was generally thought of as safe for them to just come home and hang out. So it's described that she falls asleep on the couch at 6.30 p.m. And then just before 8 p.m. rolls around, both Aisha and her brother get woken up to, you know, head to bed. And then by 8.30, they are both in bed. 
And I think this was by her mother because I think the father was definitely working that night and he would take the two to 11.30 p.m. shift. He worked like a late shift. Um, but it was it was around this time, like 8.30, when they're like headed to bed and the reason they're going to bed so early is because they're supposed to have a bath that night, but they couldn't because there was a car accident in the neighborhood that struck something like a power line and it blew the power out for like the whole city and it's starting to thunderstorm. Did you have that when you were a kid? You like couldn't take a shower or a bath when it was thunderstorming? Yes. Yeah. Do you know what's so, not to take us off the path, but um, I told John that the other day. I was like, you've never heard that, that you're not supposed to take a shower when uh, thunderstorms are happening? And he was like, no, I've never heard that in my life. He was like, that's, wow. that's a, he was like, that's an old myth. And I was like, no, it actually is absolutely <laughs> true. Google it. Because lightning can strike, I guess, the metal, um, that's it can become like the metal pipes that are used for your shower can become conductors of electricity and electrocute you. Oh, that ma- that makes complete sense. I never once questioned <laughs> yeah. it as a kid. I was just always told Me neither. when it's thunderstorming, <laughs> you don't take a shower, you don't take a bath, exactly. and you don't sit near windows because lightning can strike. Yeah. Wind- like I, I thought that was a universal thing that everybody was told. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. You and I just had the same the same upbringing. I guess. Yeah, we are the same person. We have concluded. We are. We are. <laughs> We just side note quickly. We just we texted each other before the pod this morning, at the same time as you texted me. I was literally typing in my phone to be like, "Hey, what time are we on?" Like, I literally felt it in my bones. I was like, "Oh, I need to text <laughs> back." And then I, <laughs> and then I literally like you responded in two like milliseconds. I was like, because ah. I had my thumb on the actual keys. I was like, "Oh, how convenient." <laughs> and that is spirit absolutely that is spirit but yes we definitely had that experience but that was the same thing that this household was living by was that you know it's thunderstorming the power is out you're Mm -hmm. definitely not having a bath tonight so you're just going to go to bed at 8 30 so we are pretty certain like i said that harold the father was working until about 11 30 p.m and then arrives home shortly after that because he worked in shelby he was pretty he was really close um this is where the timeline, I think, gets a little funny. And you can tell me if you had this experience with researching it because the power goes out for most of the night. So what I'm assuming and why there are varying accounts from both the mother and the father, unlike the exact timestamps of like when everybody was sleeping where, when people went to bed, when things happened, there weren't clocks that they were looking at because nobody had cell phones. It's the year 2000. And unless you had like um, a non-digital clock in your home, you probably wouldn't be clocking <laughs> you wouldn't be clocking. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be looking at the time very often. Your your timing might be a little loose when you're recounting these events. But eventually, the point is, is that Harold, the father, does get home. So, Aisha and her brother, they share a bedroom in this apartment, which also adds a little bit of eerie confusion here because I, I'm trying to understand how she did this and how she did it so stealth. Because what happened here happened very late at night, and the brother did make mention of hearing something in the room, but I, I'm still very yeah, impressed, isn't the right word, perplexed as to how she pulled this off. But what happens is at some point in that night, after the brother and her go to bed, the power is out, um, and then the power eventually comes back on, I think, around 1230, like midnight, right after midnight. Aisha's father, he got home between 11.30 to 12, and he goes to check on them. They're both in bed. They're both asleep, seemingly. 
So the father stays up just a little bit longer because he would go back and does like one final check around 2.30 a.m., he said, where he said that Aisha and her brother are still in their beds. They're sleeping. So he hits the lights off to the apartment, checks all the windows because it's storming, don't forget, and he goes to bed with that being the last moment that he would ever see his daughter alive. Mm. So shortly after the dad goes to bed, I think this was around 1230 or sorry, I think this was around 230, but I've also seen varying accounts where some people said that this happened at 1230. Aisha's brother, he hears some squeaking kind of coming from her bed, kind of like um, he just wakes up briefly, but he's not really aware of his surroundings or like what's going on. He just kind of assumes that she's changing position or she's like rolling over in bed. He doesn't think much of it, but he did remember hearing that in the room, like creaks coming from the bed. So what we know after these countless hours of investigating this um, and trying to build out a timeline is that sometime between 235 to maybe 250, for an unknown reason, Aisha got out of her bed on her own and she packed a small backpack um, and possibly changed her clothes. And then she left her house through the door and just starts moving through the dark and the rain on foot up her street. Whoa. This is where I really start to... It really is upsetting to me. I, 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 The fact that she got out and her brother didn't notice and that this little girl decided to leave her house at 3 a.m. or what what time did she leave? Or yeah, did they no, right, around, right around that. I mean, they're yeah. thinking it's between 2.35 to like 2.50, but I think three is the general, is like the general window because timing wise for how far she got, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. So to imagine doing that at nine years old, at 3 a.m., and you're afraid of the dark. Yeah, I'm saying, but this girl specifically, you, yeah, who's afraid yes, of the dark, yes. afraid of wild animals, is, you know, very, living under a strict household, a rule follower. What is going on? Like, why? What in the world? Why? 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 And there was no evidence in the home when they would later investigate this um, to suggest that there was anybody else in that room with her at any point. Like, there was no forced entry. Uh, so, it just seemed very deliberate and obvious that she had done this on her own because she packed a few things and then just walked out without hesitation without like without anybody hearing, but maybe, I mean, that might've played into like the thunderstorm as well, kind of muffling the noise of like a door opening the front door and then shutting it. And I think what I read with this apartment building is that the doors, it's unclear if she took her key with her or not, because I think that would have given us, additional intention to see if whether or not she had plans to come back but the door when you close it behind you it locks automatically like you have to take a key if you have Mm -hmm. plans to get back in so what we know then is that she makes her way down the street quite a ways you know she's kind of going through her town and she eventually gets to a ramp that leads to highway 18 where she continues on foot up this ramp and she's walking along the side of the highway by herself in the dark through the rain. And I'm, so I like go back and I'm trying to find like public address records so I could try to match up. I'm like, okay, so like where was the address of her home and like how far was the actual highway, like the ramp to the highway? Like I'm trying to piece together like how far could you actually walk in these conditions? Because keep Mm -hmm. in mind, this is February. 
it's fed, like it's cold as hell. Mm-hmm. So it, that was a lot harder to come by. It was difficult to find the address, but I think what I've seen mentioned a couple of times in the FBI reports and interviews with the parents, um, it was close to about a mile and a half that she's walking when she gets to this part of the highway. And what's really disturbing to me, Stu, and you might've seen these pictures when you look at the highway, it's rural. Like I'm talking, there are no highway lights. Oh yeah. No gas stations, no places to drive off. Like she's walking along this highway next to dark fields and like woods on either side of her. And it's also, if you look at it, there's like um, a dip on the side of the highway, like a trench for water to pool. Mm -hmm. So when she's walking, she's not even walking on the grassy part of the highway, like off the road. She is walking right on the road, like just to the right. I'm floored by that. I can't really wrap my mind around the why, the intention, the how, like how you're even able to do that at nine years old as a shy kid. I don't understand it. I really don't. So then what we know next is that sometime between 3.45 to 4.15 a.m., this is when we get our witness accounts, we've got two people on the road who would see Aisha walking along this highway. So there's one who's a truck driver. His name was Roy... Blanton, and I think he was actually in the truck with his son, I saw in some of the research. Um, so the other is a motorist who was driving by named Jeff Rupi, and both gave you know separate witness testimony, completely separate of each other. They do not know each other, um, but they said almost the exact same thing. So we know that this was most likely true, and this is what she was wearing. So she's described in a, sort of a long-sleeved white T-shirt, uh, I guess not a T-shirt, but a long-sleeved um, white shirt, Possibly white pants, maybe dark pants. It was kind of difficult to tell with the headlights. Um, And white sneakers. And at this point, she's actually getting close to the junction of the highway uh, where it reaches Highway 180. So like I said, this is a dark highway. And the speed limit is a bit higher. It's like somewhere between 55 to 65 on this highway. So an abrupt stop, especially if you're in a truck, it's kind of impossible. Um, And it's even more impossible to catch like what you're actually seeing because this truck driver didn't even know she was a kid he actually radios in later and he's like be careful to other truckers like there's a like a young woman like a short woman who's walking along the highway it was the motorist who's like a little bit lower because he's in like a proper car who clearly saw that she was a child so he ends up going all the way up the road and then tries to find a place where he can um spin around so this is 4 a.m., Jeff Rupi, he's trying to, like, spin around, find a place where he can U-turn, and he ends up spinning around, like, three times, I think he circles, before he actually finds her again. And what he described when he said he saw her the first time was that when she was walking, she wasn't aimless. Like, she wasn't just kind of wandering. She was walking with pace, and it was deliberate, and she had her head down because he could see her pigtails from the back kind of, like, peaked up. And she seemed to have a destination that she was heading towards, which I also think is really, really interesting, especially when we get into theories about like whether or not she was aware of what she was doing. So then he describes that he, uh, you know, sped past and he comes back, circles three times, finds her again. And this is the most chilling part of this story. When he spots Aisha degree again, he stops the car and he rolls down the window. Mind you, it's still pouring. She's got nothing over her. And he tries to get her attention, tries to flag her down because he's thinking of his own kids. He's a father of two. And he's like, what 
what is this kid doing out walking at four in the morning in the rain? So she looks at him with this kind of like wide-eyed, bewildered look. And without a second of hesitation, she turns and darts into the dark woods off of the highway. And this would mark the last person, we believe, who has ever seen Aisha Degree alive. What did you think oh, when you read that? Oh my gosh. I just, I feel for him. I feel for her in the moment because I know she was probably just terrified because she had probably grown up with parents that said, you don't ever get in a car with a stranger. You don't ever talk to a stranger. And so I'm sure her gut, her first reaction was, this man's going to take me. I got to yeah. run into the woods. Um, and I feel for him because I'm sure he, that's why he was going around and around is because he was probably like, how do I do this without scaring this little kid? Like, what? how do I approach this? Yeah, the decision-making um, is, is shocking at that time because I, I was trying to weigh that out too because a lot of people have criticized him. They're like, why didn't you chase after her? And it's like, well, when you don't have a cell phone and it's 2000 and it's 4 a.m. In, in like a rural part of North Carolina, the better option, the smarter option is to fly up the road to the nearest exit and find a phone. Yes. Instead of just getting out yeah. and like running through the mud from a child who's already scared of you. That's the other really heartbreaking part of this is that had one of those witnesses immediately called the police or like had they had the technology like we have now to immediately, she probably would still be alive, which is really, really disheartening. I completely agree. But I'm also still stuck here thinking like, what is she doing out there in the first place? Like what, what's actually going on here? Can I tell you like what, I, it just occurred to me as we were talking about it and I've been researching this and I just had this (laughs) thought. I wonder if it really was that she was so distraught about this game. Has anybody ever researched where her school was and was it in walking distance? Yes. Okay. Um, I do have some research on that. So both witnesses described that she was actually, when she was walking, she's walking with traffic, not against traffic. Um, extremely dangerous. But also, she they knew this because they were like, oh, she's heading south. Like, she's southbound in the opposite direction of her school. Her okay. school is northbound. See, that throws out my theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that throws oh. out my theory. I was like, was she going to, like, show up early and try to practice and, like, prove that she's, you know, like. Yeah. I could see a little kid thinking that. But that, oh, my gosh. Okay, why? Unless, she, unless she was lost. Why? But she knew this yeah. she knew this highway a little bit because this was actually the highway um the strip that like her bus would take every morning so it's odd to me if she was like unclear about which direction she was headed in however you know it's dark it's cold it's raining it's very easily mm-hmm. very easy for a child to get disoriented i'm sure um but that yeah. was noted she was walking in the complete opposite direction of her school <sighs> freaky ooh freaky so like I said, I mean, this guy, he panics. So he flies up the road and he's like, I have to get a hold. I have to call 911. So he finds a phone. He's able to call 911. And there is a bit of dwell time because of this, you know, where between that last sighting, her running into the woods and when police are actually contacted. Um, but the window is still relatively close. I would say there's probably no more than like a half hour that passes before people are responding. So then, you know, we are now in the morning of February 14th. It is Valentine's Day. At exactly 5.54 a.m., Akila, her mother, wakes up to get her kids ready for school. because And because that power was out the night before and it was storming and they couldn't have a bath, the first, the first thing that she does 
she draws a bath for them. Like they're going to have to have a bath before school. And then she goes to wake them up. She opens the bedroom door. And the first thing that she sees makes her heart sink because Aisha is not in her bed. So she starts to panic. And like I said, the grandmother lives across the street. So her first thing, she's like, okay, she left the house for whatever reason. She definitely went to her grandmother's. So she wakes up the father. They immediately try to contact the grandmother. They leave the house and they go over there. Aisha's not there, obviously. And that's when the situation really, really sinks in. And they immediately call the police, who, again, there are other police who are already responding to that 911 call that just came in because Aisha ran off the highway. Aisha is gone. And before I actually jump into the investigation, just to like close out the actual event and the last sighting of her, any final thoughts on just how freaky that is? Oh my gosh. Um, it's unsettling. <laughs> it's really I just, unsettling. Every time, don't you every time, okay, the, every time I think about that very last moment, it yes. feels like she's just a ghost. Like, and I can see because that precious photograph of her that is on everything, yeah. I can see that little face and then it just going <gasps> and going into the dark. And that is what spooks me so much is that precious face and then just vanished like I think yeah. on her own of her own accord I I've yeah that's the thing too is like I also imagine it like with this deliberate intention to leave home or go somewhere we have no idea where she was trying to go but then this look that he described and I've like really gone in through like his statements I've, I've watched interviews and listened to you know audio recordings it, it wasn't even like she was scared necessarily obviously she was spooked and she eventually ran off but it's like when he calls her name she turns to him and she just has this blank expression not like an expression of fear but like she's just looking at him and then the second that he like clearly is going to try to get out of the car and like talk to her that's when she turns and she just runs into the i i could never imagine doing that as a kid i couldn't do that today who can do that? No, me neither. Me neither. I mean, it, it speaks to the type of per- little person she was, that she was going to be that determined to get herself up out of a house without being detected, start walking with a intention, and yeah. then having the guts to run into the woods to avoid this man. Like, <sighs> Well, it could also be counter to how she would normally do things as well. I mean, maybe there are theories that she wasn't making rational decisions for quite a few reasons. So, I mean, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I mean, so much of what I've heard so far just seems completely counter to what I've been told about Aisha's personality that I have a hard time believing she would do all of these things, but I I guess you never know, but I'll get into the actual investigation and we're going to run through like the full timeline of how this day and the following days go. So this morning we're here, February 14th, Aisha's now confirmed missing. Police are arriving by, I think, 6.40 a.m. And they immediately secure her bedroom as a scene for evidence because um, they actually bring in trace canines straight away because they're like, this is a missing child. The hunt is on. Um, We need to find out where her foot traffic is if if we're not seeing any signs of forced entry. So oddly enough, and this could have potentially been due to the storm, the canines can't really track her beyond the driveway isn't that weird so weird her footsteps stop at the driveway but she had gotten so far 
alone. I mean, according to these witnesses, like she was, she wasn't seen with any adults or anything. She's walking by herself. Uh, Again, it just feels like we're set up for such like failure with this case, like something, something like running on every turn. And and evidence that like contradicts itself. It's very strange. So then by 7am, Akilah, uh, police are already at the house with the husband, Harold. She's already out the door. She's in her car racing through this town, screaming her daughter's name out the window, which wakes up the entire neighborhood. And this is where, this is where I read this and I started to cry. <laughs> the whole neighborhood gets alerted about what happened to Asia. Everybody cancels their plans for the day. Everybody, call, people call out of work. They, they stop school. Like people jump in. Members of the church start to assemble a search party and they scoured this town like from morning till night all day that first day. And ultimately they don't produce anything but a mitten which it turns out, once they showed it to the mother, it didn't even belong to Asia. It, it was just a random mitten. But it also brought to attention that this is February 14th. This is winter. She didn't leave with any winter clothes. So, and I should also mention February 14th is her parents' anniversary, too. I, I read that. Oh, my God. Which, I, it's... There are some theories around that on, like, the very specific timing of the day of her disappearance, family stress, strange dynamics. There are lots of there are lots of questions and discussions around that. But the mitten conversation, I think, particularly draws in, you know, to, to question how she was able to stand the weather, being a storm and being cold. And I actually jumped in because I wanted to pull up some archival weather reports so I could see exactly. I'm like, what was the weather on this night, this morning? in Shelby in the year 2000 on February 14th. And between the hours of 2 to 5 a.m., according to this archive report, it was like 45 degrees outside. She would have been freezing. And to muscle through that weather for more than a mile on foot with no umbrella, no coat, like what the f*** is going on? How did this, how did this yeah. happen? I don't understand. So... What do we have in the investigation? It's still going on throughout the day. Day one, they checked through every inch of the room. They realized there's a few things that are missing um, and some stuff that she had most likely taken with her. For one, we knew that she packed a backpack. And within that backpack, there were a limited number of items because almost everything in that room, with the exception, I think, of some clothing items, um, one in particular being a a New Kids on the Block t-shirt, it was still there. So we know she took her sneakers I think they confirmed she took a pair of blue jeans. She had a black Tweety Bird purse that she won in her class from her teacher that she also took. It may or may not have had a little bit of money in it that she saved. Um, And she also had a pen and paper, which I think is curious. And she had a book, a Dr. Seuss book that she had actually checked out from her school library. Now, let's talk about packing the book because I'm very interested in that because to me... I've read this from like three different sources. And like I I said, it's described that Aisha was a rule follower and not to say that something couldn't have happened that would have like shifted, you know, her mind, her mind or her thinking. Um, But from my memory of like my childhood thinking and like childhood psychology, usually like, especially when it comes to school things, if you take something that like, you know, you have to return it to me suggests that you have plans to return and return that Mm -hmm. thing. You know, so mm-hmm. her taking the book, the li- the checked out library book suggests to me that she had plans to come back. And she also, 
because she packed a limited number of things, I'm thinking like spending a night out sleepover packing, like not really like running away packing. Well, I thought, I thought about this in two ways. I keep thinking about when did she pack it? (laughs) Oh, so you're not even sure if she packed it that night. Yeah. I'm wondering if she packed it prior or like, because also think about if she packed it that night when she decided to get up in the middle of the night and leave, Mm -hmm. she didn't turn on any lights. So she was probably putting stuff in that bag just from trying not it. to wake her brother up yeah. from feeling it. She probably didn't even know that book was still in the bag. I, I, if I were a little kid, I'm sure she just threw whatever she had thought as she's laying in bed, like what she's going to pack, I guess, and went grabbed the notebook or grabbed the T-shirt, threw it in, and, and ran. I, I, or did she pack it before she went to bed or something? Like that blows my mind. I don't know. I think you're probably right with the first part of what you're thinking because if she packed before she went to bed, and maybe, I mean, she, she could have, but wouldn't she? I feel like she would pack more sensically. It seems, um, it seems more logical that like the strangeness of what she did end up packing is most likely result, the result of her packing in the middle of the, the night, in the dark. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't even think about the, um, the possibility that the book could have just been in the bag. And maybe, maybe I've read that all wrong. Cause in my mind, I'm like, Oh, that's clear evidence that she had plans to return, but maybe not. Maybe it was just there. Well, I maybe, I don't know if <laughs> her mom, I'm sure doesn't even remember this, but you know, most kids that are in a strict household like this, they'll pack their backpack the night before they go to school. Yeah. So I wonder if they had packed the bag and then in the middle of the night when she decided to leave, part of her bag was already packed. I don't know. It's possible. So you're kind of siding with the idea already. You think that this was her deliberately running away. I just, I just don't know what else it could have been. Like, I just, you, I, and you I wait, cannot you wait, wait for, for you to theories. launch. I cannot wait because I am just shook already by the thought that she ran away on her own accord. So I, yeah. Okay. I'm I'll, gonna I'll close keep going. my mouth I'll, now. I'll press, no, I'll, I'll press on. I'll keep going. So what evidence do we have that actually gets turned up in the investigation? So despite the massive search efforts of that day um, in the area, like right off the highway, um, we actually don't have any clues that show up until the following day, the 15th. Um, so police have already determined that at this point, it's more than likely that Asia left of her own doing. There's no evidence, like I said, of forced entry. The apartment seemed to be fine. They're just trying to figure out the why. So, there's now 60 to 100 volunteers who jump in and they're trying to search the, the area, figure out where she went. And all of them are focusing their search efforts on this like two to three mile radius that's like just outside of where she ran into the woods. Uh, and then there's a break. There is a hair bow of hers that is discovered nearby in a shed. So... All of the neighbors in this subdivision, they were kind of asked privately, not like a search warrant, but they were said, like, please, like, can you search your properties on your own? Because children, when they run away, it's very common that they'll get scared and they might just, like, go to somebody's backyard and, like, hide somewhere in, like, a shed or something just to kind of, like, take cover, especially if it's pouring. So that's when the Turners, the Turner family, they actually, they have a shed or, like, an old, like, chicken coop. Um, that's a band, like they don't do anything with it. They just store stuff in there. They go in there and they end up finding a few things. They find a wallet sized photo of a young girl who was not Asia and police have never determined who this girl was, which is 
so freaky to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they determine that this is connected to Aisha's case because they find Aisha's hair bow, her pencil, which her mother confirmed because it had um, Atlanta written on it, which she bought when they were at a family reunion in Atlanta like a year prior. They also find a pen and they find candy wrappers. So for better context, like location-wise, this is about one and a half miles, the shed, from Aisha's house. And I think it's like 600 feet from the roadway um, of the street where this house was. I'm not, I'm not sure if that means 600 feet from the highway. Um, but for further context of how difficult it would have been for her to get there to the shed, and she was definitely there. I mean, I, I would assume she, she was there if that's her stuff. Mm-hmm. She would have had to cross from the roadway the length of two football fields, and she would have to get past a three-foot-deep gully to get to this shed and hide out. So I think this is where the mystery of that wallet-sized photo kind of comes into the conversation. And people start questioning Aisha's, like, why she would have that in her possession if that was her who was in that shed alone. Um, and then within the following two days, the ground and aerial searches, those efforts are called off because there's no new evidence that comes to light. And I think this is when that trucker who had originally radioed in, he's like, there's a small woman who's walking. He catches the story of Asia Degree and he calls police and he's like, I saw this girl. I had no idea it was this girl. So he's brought in for a polygraph test as well as Jeff. I think he was also given a polygraph. Both of them passed. Um, and they were ruled as, you know, not involved in any suspicious way whatsoever. And I think it's also this day that police publicly rule out the parents as being suspects in the case as well, which do you have any thoughts on that? Are you, I know some people are, that doesn't sit right with them. Yeah. I, well, I, I, in my research saw, um, that they really pressed the parents at first, like they were gunning for the parents. Um, it's the most logical which, in most cases. That's the most logical. Yeah. Um, I also listened to the 911 phone call um, that her father I haven't heard gave. that. Well, it's um, the, it, the transcript was read by someone else. Mm. And also the transcript is not from a like news source. It's from uh, or not from like the actual 911 dispatcher. It's from a news source. So it's not. I, we're not entirely sure if it's exactly what it is, but it's believed to be the oh, correct script. It's got but like a few degrees of he's separation. He's sort of like, yeah, yeah, but he's kind of confused in it. Like he keeps saying like the wrong apartment number, like, but he's of course just disoriented. I I would think because of what's going on, but. Oh yeah. Um, it's yeah. crazy what, what goes yeah. out the window when you call 911 in an actual emergency. Like I, mm-hmm. I've had that experience where like, I can't, I can't think straight sometimes when I call 911 yeah. and like my mind's racing so, so hard to get the right information to them. And I consider myself someone who's like well, well equipped to call 911 yeah. because I surround myself with nothing but like horror and murder. <laughs> but yeah. I get tripped up. I'm sure for a parent, it must be incredibly devastating and confusing as well. But yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because there are a few theories that I could get into that talk about Harold and whether or not he has additional knowledge that could have confused the case. Mm-hmm. So over the next few days in this case, I think to a week, actually, the case falls pretty flat in terms of evidence, but the independent searches kind of continued with like volunteers, family and friends, of course, and they're they're still questioning people. I think they actually... um. Let's see. 
they even set up a roadblock police like along this highway so they could stop every driver for like an entire day and night so they could individually ask them like there was a girl who was walking along this highway on this this night this morning did you see her have you seen this photo any evidence of her and it's also called out in the media that at this time in Asia's fourth grade class i don't know if you've heard this they were reading a book called the whipping boy which a part of the plot of that book involves two boys who run away from home together and then they return so a lot of people have said that could have been the catalyst to her thinking and wanting mm-hmm. to run away cuz i've i immediately connected this to an experience that i had when i was a kid and i think i swear to god it had something to do with spy kids i think and I don't know why, but, like, my brother and I, like, planned. We had, like, Spy Kids toys, like, watches and stuff like that. We planned to wake up in the middle of the night, get dressed, put on our Spy Kids watches, and, like, go out and be spies in our town in the middle of the night. And we got out the front door. We got out the front door. I think every kid (laughs) has, like, a runaway, like, fantasy sort of thing that they, like, want to play pretend and, you know, or threaten to run away. Um so, yeah, and inspiration from a book, totally, I could see it. Yeah, I mean, the problem was is that, like, I couldn't really imagine, and maybe this is just my own thing, you might feel differently, I couldn't imagine following through because we got out the front door and then we immediately went back inside. It, like, just got too real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say is that most of the time, though, you do it for, like, two seconds, and it's really about the thrill of, like, packing your bag and, like, yeah, the yeah, yeah. drama behind it. But <laughs> it's the theater actually, of the runaway. It's... Yeah, but but don't you also, like, think it's just so crazy that she would do it in the middle of the night when it's raining, when her parents aren't around to be a part of, like, the act of, like, I'm going to run away. Like, I feel like it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense for, like, a runaway case, in my opinion. It's Yeah, I mean, nine years old is young, but I think nine is also an age where I think you have have a little bit of, um, I don't know, you you have reasoning skills and critical thinking skills to figure out like, okay, this would be a bad idea or I'll need to take X, Y, and B, you know, whatever for, yeah. for protection, an umbrella, a coat. Like there, there are just a lot of things that feel like extremely spur of the moment. But again, we don't, we have no idea what was going on through her head or like you said, the intense need to remain quiet and do this yeah. in secrecy that could have completely shifted everything. We're like, Maybe she wanted to take those things, but like time is running out. Her dad yeah. could wake up. Her mom could wake up at any moment. The brother could wake up They're in the same room. So she just had to pack what she could, get out, figure it out later. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, that makes me, that suggests to me something went on at home. There was a shift in the dynamic maybe day of or a few days prior that prompted mm-hmm. this feeling like I have to run away. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that case, it it just goes cold completely for, I think another like year and a half would pass before we get another break. And this is actually two days shy of Aisha's birthday. I think she was born on August 5th, I think. Right. Oh, I I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was August 5th because this was discovered on August 3rd where they find her backpack, which contained the new kids on the block t-shirt, as well as that Dr. Seuss book. It is uncovered at a construction site in Morganton, North Carolina, which is a full 26 miles from her last known whereabouts. The backpack is found buried, and it was encased in a plastic bag. 
Cadaver dogs are brought into the site. They search the entire area where they turned up nothing outside of that backpack. So this tells us a couple of things that we should discuss. We know for certain, I think, at this point that there was an adult who was involved here, at least in the latter half of the story, because there is no way, no way she got 26 miles from Shelby on foot. And then it, it just didn't happen. Like she was put in a car Someone did something to her, and then they buried her items. And also, she would never put her own backpack in a plastic bag. Yeah, I mean, like, clearly, like, there's, yeah. there's someone else who's clearly involved. Clearly someone got her. I just don't... Also... Yeah. Did you find... Did you read in the research that there were, like, khaki pants or something? Oh, I don't think I... I don't think I brushed up on that this morning, but I kind of vaguely know what you're talking about. At the same construction yeah. site? Yeah. No. I I vaguely yeah, but they like ruled out whatever, which still bugs the crap out of me if they actually ruled it out because they were too far away or like they couldn't make a connection to the backpack. But they did, I think, find a pair of like men's khaki pants like around that area. But maybe they thought it was a construction worker. I don't I don't know. But oh, that's really interesting. Um, maybe like he was yeah. he was burying the pants along with the backpack because I'm assuming he buried the backpack to get rid of evidence. Maybe those pants were the pants he was wearing if he did something to her yeah. and there was evidence on yeah. them. That's what I would think. So interesting. Burying evidence seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. I <laughs> I always thought people burned evidence, but I guess <laughs> maybe Burn not everyone's a smooth or criminal. Take yeah, or like take the evidence with you and and get rid of it somehow, like to make it go away. Yeah, but I, mean, I wouldn't just miles is a great distance. It. Yeah. Well, that's the, I should also mention that as well. We have no idea if Aisha actually made it those twenty six miles. We just know that her stuff ended up there, so clearly there was somebody involved in either scenario. But we don't know if she was picked up and then brought twenty six miles away from Shelby. Her stuff just ended up buried there. Also, don't you find it so interesting that whoever this was that buried it, they were intelligent enough to think, let me do this at a construction site, because guess what goes on at a construction site? It's going to get buried over top of, underneath something else. Like, something totally. will be over that forever. Like, yeah, ugh. nobody's, no one's ever, I know, yeah, that's, that's, I didn't think about that, but that's definitely strategic. Just maybe not like fully thought out because it did get uncovered. Maybe they came a little too yeah. like early in the process of that construction. Yeah. yeah. Like you got to do it right before the foundation is laid. But yeah, I didn't even yeah. think about that. That was probably their intention to be like, no one's ever going to like dig up a grocery store or whatever they're building on this. Yeah. <sighs> and then what we would see after this, there's a lot of, there's multiple suspects, there's false leads, a lot of which are given, none of which turned out to lead to anything further in the investigation. And Aisha remains as a missing child. They can't even definitively rule whether or not she's dead, whether or not she was trafficked. She's just a missing child. And I think as of today, uh, like this year, she would have been 32. But there is something else that happened. We did have another break, and I don't know how much weight this holds for you. This is around 2016. I don't know if you saw this. There is a new witness testimony that comes out of the FBI um, 16 years after the disappearance where someone says that that February morning, they also saw Asia, And this was, I think, sometime timestamp-wise. I think it was after she ran into the woods this person claimed to see her that morning and they saw her get into a green 1970s model uh, Ford Thunderbird or what they thought was that and it had rust around the wheels. It's possible, if this is true, 
that this was the last time that anyone actually had seen her alive and she was undoubtedly abducted. Um, But again, we just have this one person's account of that and it's 16 damn years too late. So it's basically hearsay. Um, And before I jump into any of the theories, I just would add a few extra details here. Uh, So Aisha, again, had no prior history of running away. Nothing like this. No no ill behavior that could explain. And there was no abuse um, that was found in in any of the evidence. No, like, abuse in the house or neglect. Uh, Police never once noted that in their investigation. When they interviewed family, they interviewed the brother. And neither Harold or Akila have any criminal records or any history to suggest that they were involved. So I'm trying to understand what pushed her to to this decision to leave. And I have watched a lot of interviews with these parents, and I'll just say personally, in my opinion, that I have ruled them out just from my Mm -hmm. own like instinct and intuition. I I truly, truly do see them as like grief stricken parents who are like deeply confused and lost from the lack of closure here. So I don't think that they're involved, but I still will cover the theories that mention their potential involvement. Any thoughts before we jump in? Um, my thought is that uh, witness testimony coming 16 years too late. It's a damn shame because that type of car is, that's a classic car. That's a rare car. Had that person come yeah. forward, they could have really done some digging and found people that owned a 1970s Ford Thunderbird in Shelby, North Carolina. That's a pretty... Uh, easy that would have been an easier find than i'm sure people know um if you're not familiar with that type of car i mean that's a green ford thunderbird like the description of the rust around the wheels i'm like yeah come on that's that's pretty specific because most people who would own that car would keep it in a very i'm assuming a decent condition yeah yeah not this person Um, and that car's probably gone now it's probably in the junk yeah, yeah. But it makes you wonder about who, who that was that was driving that type of vehicle and at that hour and whew, anyways. Well, let's talk let's like jump into that actually. We should talk about that potential vehicle and whether or not that was somebody who she planned to meet or if that was an opportunistic moment. So the first theory that I have, I think we, we both kind of like talked about this. Asia degree planned to leave on her own, like all the evidence suggests, and she planned to meet someone. So Let's talk about this because there's no evidence of forced entry. We know that it's assumed that Asia left on her own um, with a location or a person in mind to meet because it seemed deliberate where she was going. The question is who, the question is why. And the first assumption that I came to the first time that I read this case, I was like, oh, early 2000s, like she was coerced online by a predator. There was somebody who like planned this and was like, we're going to meet like behind I don't know, this location or like off of this highway on this night and you have to like bring this and that. But after all of the, you know, the investigation that took place here, first of all, the family had no computer in their home. This was 2000. It's unclear whether or not she had computer access at school, although I would assume she had a bit, maybe like a half hour each day on like media days in elementary school. But the police looked into that as well and they never found any evidence of like coercion or like an online predator who was like coaching her through a plan to meet. What do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think that she was maybe setting out to like leave to meet somebody with like someone in mind? 
Absolutely not. Um, I also just don't buy it because she had no clock. She the power was wasn't the power out? Like how so the power was out, to... but the power came back on. I think at twelve. Oh, it came 30. back on. Yeah. That's right. Although when, on. Power, when um, power comes back on, clocks are like blinking unless you reset them and you need oh, that's some. Right. Yeah. That's so true. yeah, I don't know. There's a few. There's a few roadblocks here, but maybe at some yeah. point she ha- she was supposed to meet them like much earlier, and the power going out like threw a huge wrench in her plan. So at some point she's like, that I just have to true. leave. I just have to get out and go find them. It would really blow my mind if it ever came to light that she th- was meeting with somebody. Well, I have a few other theories that could suggest that, but it doesn't really tie into like online coercion. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit, but I mean, I guess you're kind of leading towards the theory that Aisha left for the unknown re- for whatever unknown reason. She's running away. She's upset at home. She's distraught over the basketball game, and and we just can't we, we can't come to terms with like what that was. But what happened was that she ran into an opportunistic killer or an abductor who saw her alone on the side of the road realized that this was an opportunity where there are no witnesses. This is the middle of the morning. Nobody's around and it's raining. I can take this kid and nobody's going to know. I didn't realize how rare that is. That is statistically extremely rare for that to happen. Really? Yeah. I opportunistic child abductions. Um, that they they usually don't happen like that, just based on data. I mean, it's usually someone who's been like watching a child and like learns mm-hmm. their patterns, mm-hmm. learns like when they might be alone. And also, it's usually younger children. A nine to ten year old could be risky. They're they're not as easy to sway because they're actually getting closer mm-hmm. to being a teenager and having a little bit of like critical reasoning there that they they could very well be a problem for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious your thoughts on that because I I don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just hadn't thought about it like that. I'm in my mind, again, the the phrase I've said before that nothing good ever happens after 2am, but I think to myself (laughs) that it does not. And I think to myself, like I can see in a rural area of North Carolina, somebody out driving. I, I, I just feel like that's not totally off base that some wacko is like, all right, like, let me, let me do this. And it could even be like for other reasons. Like, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't think you abduct a child without some, I I hate always going back to this, but like a sexual kind of deviance or like some sort of deviant behavior you're going to do to that child. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It could be like, it could have been something like, like, targeted because of the way she looked like i don't know it's just but it's yeah i appreciate you bringing up that data does not really support that because in my mind I it's just entirely it so possible more. it's just very yeah. very rare um but i'm also yeah. curious to hear your thoughts about so if that's the case i'm trying to figure out timeline wise when that happened because we okay so she spotted by the guy jeff who's like what are you doing out here you're a child and she runs into the woods and then at some point we know that she got to that shed stayed there for a little bit and then left. But I'm trying to figure out like by that time it was morning. So like, and the search was already going on. So like that's even riskier because now there's someone who's like taking her in broad daylight. And that that's really opportunistic because people are up awake and there's light. And she's a, she's a child that people are searching for. 
How do we know it was daylight? So this is around, when is it? I think 4.15. Yeah, 4 a.m., 4.15, when that guy spots her. She runs off into the woods, and then we're assuming after she got to the woods, she eventually made her way to the shed on the Turner family farm. Um, so that could be between anywhere, I want to say, like maybe 4.30 to 5. So the sun mm-hmm. is going to start to come up within the next hour or so, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So she's in the shed for at least a little bit. I mean, enough time for her to like have candy, whatever else they found there, because they found those wrappers. Um, I'm just trying to piece together what happens after that, because at that point, by 5 a.m., he'd already called police, that guy. And then I think by 545, the mother's already up. So I think around six is like when she starts contacting police. So that like two hour window, I guess, where like sun is coming up. Aisha's probably soaking wet. She's in this shed that's like pretty far from like a main road. So then that's the other thing too. It's like she has to like then leave the shed, go to football fields past that gully and then get to like a road, a road where there's traffic or at least like somebody who's going to stop and like see her. And mm-hmm. I wish there was more information from this witness about like the um, the green uh, car that they said she got into because they mm-hmm. I, I never saw anything released about like okay what time was it like was there daylight like was there anybody else seen like th- there's no what road was it on what was it near like there's mm-hmm. nothing else that ever came from it so it must have just been somebody who was like fifteen years ago I saw this somewhere in this town shell but like they gave no information yeah. But I don't. I don't know. Doesn't that that kind of tracks though, right? Like the idea that it does within that two hour window would have been her time to get abducted. I think. Yeah. Risky. Mm-hmm. It is risky. Not impossible. Again, <sighs> none of this is impossible. I, like I've I've read enough of, of this shit to know like anything can happen. But piecing yeah. all of this together, I'm like, wow, what a perfectly disastrous plan. We're like. Yeah. We are left without any evidence, and someone just took the right opportunities at the right time to do something horrible. Yeah, yeah. So there is another theory here that we're not really talking about, just based on like why Aisha left in the first place, which is that Aisha didn't know what she was doing. So have you given any weight to like the sleepwalking theory? I haven't even... I knew you were going to talk about... Um... Like, as you were describing it in this moment, sleepwalking, but I haven't even read anything about this theory or considered it. So I'm fascinated to hear this. Well, so I, at first I threw that out, like, from the get-go, because I'm like, that's crazy. I was like, who could sleepwalk like that? But I've had experiences with people, adults, who have, like, sleptwalk, they they sleepwalk and they they move pretty far. Like, they can walk out of their house and do crazy things. So if we're leaning into this idea that Aisha left on her own, this brings into the question, you know, whether or not it was planned or, or she knew what she was doing. So I have researched this and there are a lot of child psychologists who have weighed in on this case specifically. And they have mentioned the possibility of an intensified episode of sleepwalking if a child is under immense stress, which could tie in to how she felt about the basketball game and this overwhelming sense of like really your first like public failure, if, if that's mm-hmm. the way she's seeing it in her mind. So that in conjunction with like the stress at home if she's under, I don't know, a strict household and her parents are both having a, an odd dynamic because anniversary is coming up and tensions are running high, that could have induced a sleepwalking episode. So a lot of people have said this explains so much of the odd decision making because how do we rationalize the shy girl who's suddenly not afraid of animals or the dark 
just getting up at 3 a.m. and kind of haphazardly packs a bag, leaves during a thunderstorm with no cover, and then ultimately ends up in the woods off a highway. How do we rationalize any of that unless we're like, she was out of her, her mind as a child? Yeah. I mean, it's not my youngest brother used to sleepwalk um, and he? he he would go. Yeah, he would go pretty far. I mean, he I remember one time and he was about the same age, actually. He was in his kind of preteen phase when it was really routine for him um, where he would sleepwalk like every week. And he would like go so far as to get out of his own bed and walk all the way down our stairs and just wander. Oh, <laughs> And then I, I, I would have to come. Wild. I can't imagine. That. Yeah. And I would have to like, I remember so vividly one time I, I had been working on a like high school project really, really late at night. I was like as in an do. AP class yeah. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> and it was like three or 4am and I came around the corner and he was just standing there at the base of our staircase. And oh, I, I was like, throw up. I, I couldn't handle I that. I literally was like, John and his eyes were completely glazed and I was like John and he said he said um oh I'll never forget this he just said surprise projectile (laughs) vomiting throwing up pissing myself (laughs) and I literally was like because you know also with sleepwalking and he he would literally be so mortified that I'm talking about this but (laughs) He used to get really like physical because they like you kind of are out of control of your body. So you're not really supposed to go up and like shake somebody or like you're supposed to kind of like gently wake them up by like saying like, John, John, like saying their name over and over till they kind of come to you. (laughs) I remember I like gently kind of turned him and started walking him up the stairs and he was like stiff as a board. Like it's a real thing. So I'm fascinated to hear. I, I don't actually think that this is totally implausible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's definitely something to consider. I think it helps build on the mystery of the first part of the story. It it also just leaves into question the same thing that we had with the other theory, whether or not she was conscious of what she was doing or not. Like what happens later? Was she abducted? She clearly Mm -hmm. was, but on the topic of sleepwalking, we should cover this on another case, but I did this for true crime by state on TikTok. There is a man in Arizona who was convicted of murder but I think his trial like went really off the rails because like he is known as the sleepwalking murderer. So there's only ever been like, I think 15 cases of this documented in history of like sleepwalking homicide. But I think he was a Russian man, but according to like family, his children, like there was no evidence that he had like ill intentions towards his wife or anything. But sometime in the middle of the night, in Arizona, I forget when this took place, like 2006 or something, he, like, brutally murdered his wife of, like, 30 Crazy. years. And, like, <sighs> when police found him, he was still clearly in, like, a fit of sleepwalking and was confused and was like, what's going on? Who are you? Like, could, like and his wife's in the pool. Like, it <gasps> is. And what's, his, his children, like, have fully forgiven him, which is the crazy. The whole case is so Oh my god! Like, that is so. That is so weird. And to this day, I mean, there's really no way to prove. I guess, like, I think he was he was eventually sentenced and convicted because they were like, well, you can't just simply like sleepwalking or not. You can't murder somebody and just go out as a free man. Right. <laughs> Tell it to Casey Anthony. But yeah, yeah. To this day, it's still a question, like whether or not he knew what he was doing. 
there was no reason for him to do that. There was no evidence that they were having yeah. marital problems. So I don't know. I, yeah, I think maybe giving a little bit of weight to like H a degree and the potential of like a stressed, a stress induced sleepwalking episode could be plausible. Um, but that still leaves us the question of like, when did she come to, if she was sleepwalking? So she's walking, she's not aware of what's going on. She's going through that highway. When does she have the moment where she wakes up? Is it when the car stops and they're like, are you okay? Like, what are you doing out here? And then suddenly she comes to, and she's a little girl who like becomes conscious. And she's like, I'm standing in the rain. I'm in the dark. There's a man in front of me in a car. And she panics and just runs. Or she's still sleepwalking. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen, I don't really believe in my gut that she was sleepwalking, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's an interesting um, theory to explain the randomness of her leaving. But from what we've mm-hmm. kind of heard, she just seemed so deliberate in her... And also, to me, what, what throws me about the sleepwalking thing is that um, I think the fact that she was in that shed and she was clearly like eating the candy and probably was like hungry and newer, like she knew that she had candy in her bag. Like that kind of throws that out for me because I'm like, she kind of knew what she was doing. Like, well, I guess so. I mean, well, that's what I'm saying is like, maybe she came to once she, that moment happened with the car, she runs into the woods, panicked, confused, and just takes like shelter. Cause it's the first time we're like, it seems that she's aware that she can't stay out under rain, right? Yeah. She takes shelter in a shed and maybe that's when she's like panicking. Like, what do I do? Cause there's no phones. There's no adults. She's terrified, shy kid. But again, it is a, it's a reach theory, but I'm happy that it gets exercised mm-hmm. in the conversation. Yeah. At least yeah. to try to understand like, okay, if we can't rationalize her thought, let's like approach it from an irrational standpoint to see if any of that lines up. Cause there are certain things you do when you sleepwalk that I think, are a telltale sign that you're sleepwalking. Yeah. My friend Ben woke up in a hotel room with his mom and sleepwalked. <laughs> he stood over her nightstand, pissed everywhere. <laughs> Just, oh, no. His, his mom, Ruby, she's told me this story before. She was like, I woke up in the dark. She's like, and he's standing over the bed. And I go, Ben? And I just hear a stream of urine all over my <laughs> iPad. <laughs> Like, no, not not the mom's iPad. The that's mom's a, that's iPad. a crime. I know. Oh God, that's a crime, baby. <laughs> In a hotel room too. Like, how is she gonna watch YouTube videos? I know. I was like, <laughs> Facebook Reels. Where are you gonna watch them? Yeah. Well, what is she gonna do? <laughs> um. So then, I guess we can shift into the other theory then, because there's a few things I want to talk about. But I want to talk about the photo that we haven't really touched on. The photo that was found mm-hmm. of the girl who was not her. Yeah. Um, so there are some who have suggested that maybe in this investigation and in the conversations that we're having about this, that we're like gravely underestimating the secrecy of Asia and like what a nine-year-old is capable of concealing from their parents and from people around them. So it's thought, you know, to try to explain who the unknown girl was and how Asia had that picture in her possession she didn't have the computer access, so we're like, okay, if she wasn't coerced through that, what is another way that somebody could have lured her out? And someone proposed that she was groomed by a pen pal. This is really interesting to me and would definitely definitely explain that picture. So 
pen pals, if, if you remember this, because when I was a kid, you can get pen pals a good number of ways, either through school or through like teen or kid magazines. You don't even have to have the magazine. You could take it from your school library and you just sign up to get assigned a pen pal. And that was heavily unmonitored activity because they're private letters. So like the magazines are just like, they're just literally like exchanging addresses to two people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going through the magazine. So like there's nobody checking on like the validity of like who the other person is on that side. So I can imagine a scenario where Asia starts a pen pal program and she's talking to a girl and that's what you do in 2000. Like they're like, Oh, I want to see what you look like. So you send a wallet sized school picture of yourself to the other person. She probably sent one too. And everyone was like, well, how would her parents not know that her parents both worked past the time that Asia and her brother came home from school. They both had house keys. So it's not, unreasonable to me to think in a strict household where like she didn't get permission to do this that every day she would come home and just snatch that letter from the mail and keep it hidden from her parents so then if we think of this from a grooming standpoint i can totally see a scenario where asia like like gives away too much information about like oh i go to this school i'm from north carolina Mm -hmm. i'm near shelby And this person's like, we should meet up. We should like spend a night out or do something like that. Like meet me here at this time, but you've got to sneak out because I have to sneak out too. Like completely manipulates this girl. And when I was hearing this, my mind was on fire because I can see every step of like how that could so easily manipulate a nine-year-old to like, oh my God, well, my friend, she's my age, she's nine. Like she's going to sneak out too. So we both sneak out. We'll pack a bag. I'll leave like around like three in the morning. And we'll meet, like, somewhere at, like, this middle point in Shelby. And then, like, we'll get back before our parents know. That's I less opportunistic. That's full-blown chills, too, because yeah. it's Valentine's Day that they're meeting. I'm sick. I didn't even think about that, but yes. Oh. I have chills. That's disgusting. If that were... If, if this theory were true, um... I don't think it's unusual that it's, or I don't think it's a coincidence that it's literally Valentine's Day. No, 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 no. The timing of this is super, super specific, I think. Either yeah. I was thinking to the parents' anniversary, but yeah, I wasn't even thinking about like, yeah, it's a universal holiday for everybody, but. Yeah. I, it does certainly explain why Asia would have that picture in her possession. And like the family has no idea who that is and nobody knew who that was. It was a random school picture of some girl. So it was with her, the candy and yeah. the pencil. It was yeah. just like the loose. pencil. There was a pencil, a pen, a hair bow, candy wrappers, and this picture of this girl, which Asia most likely yeah. had in her hand while she was walking. That's so strange. I oh know, God. but that's got to be it, right? Like pen pal situation. Yeah. Like how else would she yeah. have come into possession of that picture? Yeah. There was never any evidence. I mean, I think police looked into this as well, and they were never able to track down any evidence that was left in her room of these letters if there were letters um but again i would i would lean on the side of like it's not impossible to think that like if she lived in a strict household and she would get in a lot of trouble for hiding this from her parents that she made sure after she read those letters that she got rid of them that they're gone somewhere and maybe she just kept that picture that was the only thing she had so to me, that's a really plausible theory because, again, statistically, I have to lean into the data. It is unlikely for an opportunistic killer to just, like, find her and and be, like, hop in my car. And I also tried to rationalize. I'm like, if she was scared enough of a random adult who was trying to help her when they first saw her on the road and she ran, 
how did this adult in the alleged green car convince her to hop into the car? Unless he said some shit where he's like, oh, I'll give her a name, Terry. He was like, you're Terry's friend, right? You were supposed to meet her tonight? Yeah, we just ended up like going back to the hotel. Here, hop in my car. I'll take you to her so you guys can hang out. Kind yeah, of like something yeah. like that. And she's freezing. Yeah. She's planning to meet Terry. She has no other knowledge that it's there is no Terry. And then it's over. She's gone. Yeah. I'd put that one in the books. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't rule this theory out at all. I think that that photograph her having the possession of the little photograph is so bizarre. There has to be something I don't think that's something that you it. can just like yeah, it has to be. It's either from the person who was grooming her or who was with her at the time of her abduction or it's it's definitely this scenario where it's it's a faux pen pal catfish situation. Yeah. So scary. I had a talk from my parents when I was a kid. They specifically told me about things like this and they warned me about like adults that would pose as like people my age and would try to get me to like meet like meet them behind like my elementary school or something like this. Like this exact scenario was explained to me in the early 2000s. I wonder if they had actually heard about this case. I know it's um, I guess what blows my mind is that at nine years old, it just seems like. Like this, this scenario feels like she should be a little bit older to me. Nine seems so young to be able to have the pen pal, see through a plan, like keep it hidden from your parents. Like she must have really been like, I guess you were saying that the, we shouldn't, um, you know, throw out the secrecy of, or maybe that she was a more secretive child than we really knew, but it just seems so crazy to me to be that um like private as like a nine-year-old maybe i mean we might just be really distanced from it but i mean two things she did have an older sibling which by virtue of that there is generally younger siblings are more mature because they have a Mm -hmm. a clear example to look to but also she was trusted as a nine-year-old to come home alone she had a key to the house so that's true I, I do think that she was probably like a more mature and responsible nine-year-old than what we're thinking of and i think she probably could have plotted something like this out. And the thing is, when you live in households that are strict like that, I do think that it breeds a different mindset for a child to like find the need. Like secrecy becomes very, very important. You learn how to strategize to like keep certain things, to not anger parents, to not violate rules. And it just changes the way that you operate as a child. So I I wouldn't put it past anybody to say that Aisha was capable of this. Yeah. And... Before I close out the last theory here, this one is going to be more of a conspiracy and then this will be the final one. But this one leans into the idea that her father knew something. And I I will preface before I get into it, this is clearly just a conspiracy. Um, there's no additional knowledge to support this. It's just a way to reframe the thinking about what maybe happened and why certain things don't connect. So... It is suspected, like I said, that the Degree family was a very strict household and that Harold was a tough love kind of father. So we have a couple of timing things here that are a little relevant and and kind of off. So we mentioned how the parents, when they gave their statements, their timing on a lot of this stuff was very off. And most of it was chalked up to like, well, they weren't looking at clocks. You know, they had no power. Um, But some people are digging into that and they think that there's more to it and maybe the parents shouldn't have been ruled out right off the bat. So the following day we know was their anniversary. Um, 
and we knew that Harold was going to be working late the night before on his shift. So tensions, I guess, it's thought that they were already running high and like the fam- the family and the parents weren't having, they just weren't meeting eye to eye and they were having a lot of stress. So he's going to have to stop after work because he's going to have to pick up anniversary stuff late at night because there was no time to do it. He was working for most of the day. So he's going to have to go to like a Walmart or something. So he's already feeling stressed. It's 1130 or midnight. So he comes home. This is the the thought out timeline. He comes home and Aisha is either up past her bedtime or she's doing something. She's misbehaving and she gets threatened or reprimanded some way by Harold where he just projects or he takes out his anger on her where he realizes that she's awake. So then at 2.30 a.m., he comes back into the room after she had been reprimanded and because she was distraught after being reprimanded by your parent, and we've all done something like this where a parent yells at mm-hmm. you and you're like, I'm running away. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't, I'm running away tonight. I'll show them. He catches her in the act of packing her bag, which explains why the bag is like packed with three items, basically. In a very kind of abusive and misguided tough love approach he kind of takes this thing where he's like out of the room out of the room now he's like oh you want to run away i'll show you what running away looks like kind of thing she gets to the end of the driveway and that's why her scent stops at the driveway and then he's like no come in my car and this is where the theory kind of goes a little bit off for me but i can see some version of this where this happens and he takes her And finds that shed because, again, it's raining out. So he definitely wants to give her like a tough love spook where he's like, yeah, let's see how it is outside of the house. Here's an abandoned shed. Go stay in there for 30 minutes. I'll drive around the block. We'll see how how well you do. Um, Because the shed, although it's connected to this farm, it's kind of off and separate on its own. You wouldn't necessarily know that it's connected to someone's property. It just looks like a place where he's like, yeah, how about you go in there if you want to run away and see what that's like. So then he drives away. While she's in this shed where that's where like she takes out the hair bow and she's like eating the candy she had in her bag. Still don't know where the picture comes into play. Something spooks her because again, she's a terrified child of the dark. So she starts running from the shed because she thinks there's something in there. And 600 feet away from that, that would end up at like the only main road, which is that highway. So at that point, she's now walking up the highway, just trying to figure out like, how do I get home? At this point, Harold, the father, is coming back to the shed. She's gone. He panics. She's on the highway. That's when a witness sees her. She gets scared again, runs into the woods. And this is the moment where everything goes off because we still think the abduction happens. Like an opportunistic person who just found her, put her in that green car. Harold has now royally f***ed up because in him trying to teach a lesson, she's now gone. So he comes home. He's panicked, and I. it's unclear whether or not, like, he tells his wife about this, but that certainly explains, I guess, some of the oddities of them not being able to track her scent past the end of the driveway, how she was able to get so far, so fast, why she was in that shed, and all of that little that evidence was left there, and, like, the unexplained and weirdness of her walking on a highway like what her because like, i'm trying to understand like what was her intention unless to get home mm-hmm. so this is a super like roundabout convoluted way to think about like how this timeline unfolded but it's there is a highly highly theatrical version of this where that's possible yeah i think 
the reason that I have such a hard time believing any of this theory, no offense to whoever. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. It's, it's a very out there part of this theory. Yeah. Um, is that I think as a parent, when something like this happens and it's this tragic, it doesn't matter if you reprimanded your kid the night before, let's say, like if he got after her mm. and that's why she ran away, you would tell that to the police. Like if you're innocent, you would tell that to the police and be like, I, because you're trying to give them as many clues as possible to where the heck your child is. Right. And I just don't think that he would keep any of that interaction if that happened to himself. I also don't see him, you know, I don't see a loving parent, which it seems like her parents were pretty normal and loving. It does. It does. um, I I don't see a loving parent at 2 a.m. or whatever taking their child out into a tough love situation. A little nine-year-old girl, I just don't buy it. And, And he, it just doesn't seem like those parents are that way because um, not only do, do they not, from what it seems like, they weren't able to uncover some history of abuse or anything like that. Right. Um, but I know that the parents have like a charity or a scholarship or something in her name. Yeah. And they like purposefully chose it to not be on Valentine's Day because they don't want the community to like have to remember such a special day for most people and their own anniversary as well right um with the death of their daughter and like a person that like that if, type if of she died couple, i mean we really yeah if she died we'll never know um yeah but that type of couple and like that kind of consideration for people like i just i don't see them as being that those types of parents i just don't i totally agree i i did there were some caveats to that actual like you bringing that up and people bringing that up in the comments they were like well no i mean like if push came to shove the father would disclose everything but then this person who concocted the theory they were like it's not that he's the kind of person who wouldn't but he realized that if he came back and immediately told them what he did he would off the bat be implicated in some form of child abuse or neglect rightfully so for some like a situation where Asia could potentially be found and maybe what he thought like two hours later, somewhere around the town. So he conceals it. And then as time goes on, when she's not found, he's now kept up the the secret for too long. So he just lives with it and tries to like make right by his guilt as to what he did and like created an opportunity where Asia got abducted but it is very far-fetched and it is used to kind of reconstruct a timeline and a motive that doesn't really seem to make sense as to why she left in the first place. I just think it, it glosses over a few things that aren't explained, like the picture, but also the dynamic and everything that we know about that family doesn't really make yeah. sense to me that that would line up. Um, I also just think that like, Secrets make you sick, and if he were yeah. to keep that secret that long, that his wife would and his family would be able to pick up on that, and the police. Like, yeah. I just don't think um, you can keep something that awful to yourself and Inside, not have it right. become obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is everything that I have on the story of Asia Degree. I can feel my voice going. I should have told you at the beginning of this I'm sick. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh no, still? I was like, and what a performance. 
And what a performance. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And this has to be our longest episode yet. Like, are we going to split this up? <laughs> uh, probably not, to be honest. Sorry if you're listening. I yeah. mean, well, let me know. <laughs> Creepers, let me know. Comment and tell me if you like it when I split up episodes. Because I can. But it's also fun to just, like, throw on a full 90-minute episode. But, yeah. Like, yeah, we're, we're cre- pushing, like, heavy movies here. This is, like, a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> like, like, I know. I mean, this is a this is a a, a nice Broadway play that I doesn't have an intermission. I'm about to leave the theater. I mean, there's oh my god, Stu, I won the lottery today to see the play a play in downtown. No, not the actual lottery. I oh won- my god, I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, how did you hold that in? Oh my god! Wait, that is so. <laughs> I won a lottery to see um, the play two 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 in downtown LA, and I was like, oh my god, because I've been like looking every single day. Missed it. Missed the claim time. No. Missed it. No. Yep. <gasps> I almost threw up. In fact, I should check my phone right now because maybe <laughs> they might send me another no. email and be like, this is unclaimed. <sighs> that was so devastating. Wait, you know what's so crazy about this? Okay. Is there some national jackpot happening today or is it just DC? I thought there was a huge jackpot. Isn't there one that's like over a billion? It's like 1.3 okay, billion. Okay. Maybe or that's. Maybe that's what it, maybe it is national because let me tell you today I had no idea but I was out at Wawa of course and um there was a huge line and I was like what the heck is this line for the freestyle coke machine like I've never seen anything like this <laughs> That's what and you're it in was line for the damn Yeah I'm like I'm in line for the freaking freestyle and I was like what in the world? And there had to be 20 people in line for lottery tickets. And oh I was like, God. oh, my God, there must be some huge jackpot today. So when you you have to understand when you just told me you won the lottery, I was like, uh, uh, my stomach dropped out of my ass. I was like, <laughs> I see your face. what? I thought I had fin- like, I, in my mind, I had finished that statement. But like, I won the lottery for this show. So I thought that <laughs> that was your reaction to be winning the lottery for the show. And I was like, a true theater gal at heart. She's a theater gal. <laughs> That's so funny. (laughs) I was like, you just won a billion dollars. Like, oh my God, that's so funny. Oh, God. Well, I'm happy we got to at least end this on a little bit of like a lighter note. Um, Yeah. But thank you, Creepers, for sticking around for a longer episode and listening to the story of Asia Degree. I will say, and I've said it before, and we've said it in the last like mini episode, which was great, by the way. When you talk about these cases, specifically the unsolved cases, you keep them alive in the media. And her family has explicitly said that they were like, the more attention this case can get, the better for the long-term health of solving the case. So we're happy to keep covering unsolved stories like this. Um, if you're from the North Carolina area, the Shelby area, and if you ever come into contact or information that could help this case, always make sure to report. And Creepers, we will catch you on another episode of Creep Time, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks. Bye.